Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. John Swinton. Welcome, Dr. Swinton. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being with us again. I'm so excited to have you. Uh, We had to make some adjustments because of the time difference because you're in, where are you? I'm in Scotland, in the UK. Scotland, Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> um, for those who don't know who you are, just give them a little bit of background. Yeah, I'm a professor in practical theology and pastoral care at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. So I, uh, I've been here now in this university for 22 years. This is my 22nd year, so I've been here forever. Like I'm a dinosaur. Um, before I came into the academy, I worked as a, a mental health nurse for uh, 16 years. Uh, before I kind of spent some time in chaplaincy, uh, and I worked in chaplaincy, and eventually I, I moved from there into the academy, and that's where I've been ever since, and I'm happy there on a good day. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, today we're going to be talking about um, loving those with uh, mental illness well, um, and you wrote a book actually kind of on this topic. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yeah, I mean, I've written a couple of books on on, men, on mental health challenges. Um, the first one, I, I actually did my, my PhD on um, Christian friendship and uh, people with schizophrenia. And so in that, uh, I looked at the friendships of Jesus and began to notice how different they were from the, the friendships that many of us have, like, and we can talk about that difference as we move on. But the other thing I noticed at that point was that people, particularly uh, people living with schizophrenia, but any people with any form of, of mental health challenge tend to be alienated from society and people work according to stereotypes and stigmatizing caricatures. And so you find that people become more and more alienated just because they see the world a little bit differently. And so I brought together in that, the friendships of Jesus, which are always for the outsider in that sense, 
and this experience of people living with this particular mental health challenge and, and began to see how that could change the way we think about schizophrenia but also how we think about the church this the book I wrote in, in relation to that after spending a number of years as a chaplain working with people with severe mental health challenges. I wrote a book on, uh, called Resurrecting the Person. And in that book, I began to look at the way in which social stigma in particular devalues people with mental health challenges uh, and in the eyes of many people depersonalizes them. And the way in which the, the gift of friendship can actually um, re help people to regain their personhood and really begin to re-engage with things. And part of that process, and this is what I think is quite helpful, is when in that book, I looked at the difference between the friendships of Jesus and the friendships that we oftentimes engage in within society, right? So if you think about you, the, the um, kind of friends that you have yourself, very often they look remarkably like yourself in the sense that you know, you have shared interests, you have shared experiences, you all see the world in more or less the same way. And so you get this principle at work that like attracts like, that your friends are for people that you like. Um, but when you look at the friendships of Jesus, you see something quite, quite different. Because the, the whole principle of the incarnation, Jesus becoming a human being, means that God, who is radically different from human beings, enters into human humanity and becomes friends. You know, John says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, which is a pretty amazing thing for the God of the universe to say that you're, you're with friends. Like. And, and, but the people that he hung around with were the very people that society rejected. So tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, not reformed tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes, people who were living their lives that way, and Jesus still offers them the gift of friendship. And it struck me that friendship is really one way of articulating discipleship. And that discipleship is to be with those whom society marginalizes, to begin to resurrect their personhood in a social context, wherein people sometimes forget how important it is to be recognized as a person, is a, a very simple but a powerful gift that the church can give to people with mental health challenges. But for all of us, that's basically what we look for in life, is to have some kind of uh, friendship or relationship where you can just be yourself and so the book concludes really that if we begin to, by acting like Jesus then there's a real whole new range of possibilities for the church and also for people with mental health challenges mm -hmm. yeah I, I I never thought about it that way in which the way in which Jesus um, just how you just articulated the incarnation and him pursuing relationships with people that uh, really, he doesn't necessarily fully understand uh, <laughs> um, until he until he is um, takes on human flesh and then gets to see what humanity is dealing with on the ground versus just knowing just from observation. So that is that is very helpful. Uh, one of the things that I think prevents us when we think about engaging people, especially in the States with mental health challenges is trying to know which ways or proper engagement or communication, because oftentimes like when you're talking about um, people that may have um, schizophrenia, not knowing how to engage them in a way that won't 
further injure or create chaos. Um, uh, what did what would you speak to? How would you respond to somebody who is thinking through that and saying, "Well, I don't want to create a chaotic space, so I don't really know how to engage." So the best way to engage is to, for me to withdraw. Yeah, that's that's always the temptation because withdrawal is kind of like an easy way to, to look at it. But I think that um, engagement is what disciples are called to do. So I think it's not, it's not like we have a choice in it. The, the only choice is how we actually go about engaging in that particular mode of uh, ministry. Um, and the first thing I think to, we would want to think about is that um, to think about mental health challenges in the context of the church is not simply to think about disruption. Because what I see, I see it a lot in, in disability theology, and I see it a lot in mental health issues, that the automatic response seems to be, yes, but what if there's a problem? Or what if there's a problem in my realities? And the, you know, the vast majority of people who live with depression or anxiety are not going to be problematic. They simply want people who, who need to find a certain kind of community where they can feel accepted. Like, of course, you will have people who will be problematic. I mean, that, that <laughs> anybody who's hung around the church for long enough knows that you don't have to have, been, have a mental health problem to be problematic. So the church is always having uh, uh, to deal with people who don't quite fit in. Um, but for those who have particular difficulties, and you know, difficulties with relationships or difficulties that are caused by their experiences of mental health issues, um, and who can't fit in, having a good conversation with mental health professionals is a, is a beginning point for that. Because look, the, the church brings a certain amount of things. It brings the community, it brings friendship, it brings the gospel. And that's really, really important. But psychiatry and psychology are also important because they bring particular knowledge of uh, why people are going through these kind of situations some ways in which they can be uh, 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 brought to health and healing. And it, they bring a certain um, skill set which brings about healing. So it's only, I think, when both of these dimensions come together that we can really offer people genuinely Christ-centered, holistic care. So first thing is, don't begin with problems, because most people are not going to be problems. If you encounter problems and difficulties, Make sure that, and you know, if you want to take this, this area of ministry seriously, have conversations with psychiatrists. You, you know, you'll probably find that many co uh, congregations have psychiatrists and psychologists in them. So if you're faced with a really difficult situation, have people there to help you. But I emphasize again, most people just want acceptance and friendship. Uh, and I think that's where the bulk of it is. The people who are, are difficult always draw attention, always draw energy. But in reality, if it's the case that something like one in four people have mental health challenges, then the majority of people in your congregation are going to have some kind of issue, and most of them are not going to be problematic in, in, in the sense that you, you know, the disruptive sense that you, you highlighted. Mm, that's helpful. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you is because a number of my friends have children with uh, mental health challenges, uh, especially autism. And sometimes uh, they'll talk about the challenges of um, the stages for them as a parent, um, trying to navigate spaces, especially if they already have children that don't have autism. It's kind of a relearning of how to love well. Um, I know one friend talks about 
his sons having autism and the fact that they'll never be able to demonstrate love in the way that his children without autism um, demonstrated. So it was a bit of adjustment um, for for those parents listening or those people who have family members with autism um, or other uh, challenges, especially children, what what um, advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a, I, like, I like that question a lot. Um, one of the questions that we as, as a church need to ask ourselves, I think, is what is love and what does love look like? So we find, uh, John tells us, that God is love. Right? So everything that we do is about the love of God and living into that. But very often we have a kind of romantic understanding of what love is. And so we think topic of love is something soft and gentle and relational in the community. Uh, and a lot of these images we get from uh, society and culture and media rather than from scripture, where it seems to be to love one another is, can be pretty dangerous work. But there's a really interesting article I came across not so long ago by a Mennonite theologian called Christine Guth. And she begins by stating that she used to have a kind of really romantic understanding of what love was, that it was community and relationships and all these things. And that's not to say that it's not, but that was the way she felt about it. Until, and so she could never understand why her husband and her children didn't function in that way, that the kind of love that, that uh, she was looking for and expecting wasn't happening in her family. Um, until, and she was, she was kind of mystified until she discovered that all three of them had Asperger's syndrome. And when she discovered that, she began to realize certain things, primarily amongst them, that love has a number of different shapes. And love in the context of Asperger's may not be the same as love in the context of somebody who has a romantic idea of love as uh, Valentine's Day or whatever it is. And so she began to think that the way that she loves her husband is by making sure that the routine in the house is steady and rhythmic, that she, he gets his sandwiches in the right space within the, the uh, fridge every day. By creating these, these kind of routines and recognizing that these are modes of love, she began to see that actually the romantic understanding of love that she had was nice and warm, but doesn't actually apply across the board. There are many ways in which we can love one another. Culturally, we may say that this model of love is better than this model of love. But in reality, the love that she discovered through interaction with her, her children and her uh, husband was of a different shape, but no less meaningful. And it's interesting because when you look at the, um, the history of the Christian tradition, some of the most spiritual people, like the mystics, they weren't community people. They grew out on their own and spent you know, their lives in the desert or on top of hills, hills trying to find the love of God on their own through flagellation, through punishing their bodies, all sorts of odd ways. And yet these were all expressions of the way in which they thought and felt that they should uh, uh, love, come to love God. So I think that the first thing and this, for, for the whole community, not just for families of people living with autism, is to recognize that love is a thick and a rich thing and there's no single model, and the love that you encounter with, towards your child and from your child may take a completely different shape and form from what you might expect it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's any less meaningful, and it's certainly no more, no less important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's very helpful 
what are some um, ways in which um, there's a lot of people that have friends that may be struggling with depression or close to, or family members that may be struggling with depression or suicide, and they're trying to communicate in ways that are effective, um, that will promote, um, that will not further injure. Because um, sometimes when we're engaging with people that may be battling depression, the ways in which we articulate um, some of our thoughts may further injure or push people away. So what are ways that which uh, we could be better friends to people who may be struggling with things like depression um, in which we keep uh, the lines of communication open and not close? Well, I think the first thing that needs to be done for all of us, and this is simple, is stop talking about depression uh, uh, in a flippant way within our day-to-day -day conversations. Right, so oftentimes you hear people, you know, it's Monday morning, I'm feeling a bit depressed, and we use the word depression in such a way that it actually loses its power. And so when you encounter somebody who truly is depressed, it's a completely different experience. Uh, so stop using the expression depression outside of the context of people that are really depressed is helpful because then you can take it seriously. Because depression, it's not a matter of just pulling your socks up. Actually, it's something quite, quite uh, different. Um, in relation to what you could do, uh, you, I mean, you have to be patient and you have to be kind and you have to have perseverance. So love, is, uh, according to Paul's definition, is central to that. But, you know, you've got to understand. I've done quite a lot of uh, research on depression. And I always remember one woman whom I, I talked to, and she described her depression like this. She said, when I'm depressed, it's like I'm at the bottom of a deep, deep pit. And the walls of the pit are lined with some kind of slippery substance. I don't know what it is, but I can't climb out. And I look up and sometimes I can see light and sometimes I can see nothing but uh, darkness. And all I want is to get out of there and there is no way that I can get out of there. Then she says, um, when I'm well, it's like, a, it's not like I'm relieved. She says, it's like I'm walking around the edge of the pit, looking in and knowing that at any moment in time, I could fall back in there. So even when I'm well, I, the, the shadow of the pit is always with me. Now, there's two things to think about in there. She says, when I'm at the bottom of the pit, all I want is to get out of there. Um, sometimes when we're talking about being with people with uh, depression or, or we say all we, all we can do is to sit with people. And that's true, and that's a very good thing to do. But for her, she wanted to get out. She didn't simply want somebody to jump down and, and sit with her. She wanted to get out. And the way that she uh, got out of that was through medication. So medication was important for her uh, because it, uh, it reconnected her with uh, life, with herself, with others, with God. So it was a kind of a spiritual process for her. So she needed presence, but she also needed the presence of, of mental health professionals. But the interesting thing, the second thing to think that that's interesting is when she was walking in that pit, looking down there, it suddenly struck me how difficult it must be to live with depression even when you're not depressed. Because if you have the shadow of the pit over you all the time or you're in the pit, 
that's pretty tough going. I mean, that's a difficult way to live your life. And this, this same woman articulated the same thing. She said, it's just a, a difficult way to live my life that I'm, I'm either in the pit or out of it. Like. And she says, sometimes I do consider suicide. Um, but, but then she says, I have a dilemma. And the dilemma is, is this. She says, I really find it difficult to live in or in the shadow of the pit. But I also love Jesus. And so I can't do what I really want to do. And that sometimes frustrates me. Sometimes I get angry with God about that. Um, but that's just as it is. Um, and again, if you want to think about that, that sounded to me a lot like the Psalms of Lament. That, that sense that, yeah, this is absolutely terrible. And that the, the Psalms are real structures. Right? So most of them, not all of them, most of them go like this. It's, it's absolutely terrible. These terrible things have happened. God, you've been unfaithful to the covenant. You know, my enemies are against me. But then right in the middle of the psalm, something changes. Suddenly the psalmist recognizes God's unchanging love. And when, that, when the psalmist recognizes that, everything changes. The situation is still horrible, but he recognizes God in that. And he goes on to worship. And for this particular woman that I'm thinking about, it was very much like that. Uh, that in the midst of the difficulties she had, she um, did find God. Other people don't. And so Psalm 88 ends, darkness is my only companion. And that's just how some people think something. That's just how you feel. So I think uh, another thing that we can do that's helpful is to get into the habit of reading the Psalms. And get into the habit of learning how to lament faithfully. Because lament's always prayer. Uh, and if you have these habits, then that can be a, a way of giving language to an, an experience that really very often people don't have language for. Because when you're in that pit, there, there's no words for it. Right? But the Psalms begin to, to at least give us a possibility of, of talking positively about devastation. Mm -hmm. Or talking hopefully about devastation. I think that's uh, very, very helpful. Um, for for some, uh, I think there is, and I, I could be wrong, there's depression that kind of comes from just maybe just that's always been present. And then for others, there's depression that comes from situations, um, especially in times of the loss of a loved one and grief. Um, the loss of a loved one, maybe not because of um, death, but just because of conflict that, you know, um, how would you, would you say that our response to that should be the same when it's kind of situational versus lifelong? I think from the perspective of the church, it probably doesn't make much difference because the church should not a psychiatric community, it's a, it's a Christ-like community. So the psychiatrists, it may make a big difference because it may have a difference in the type of medication that people have or the way that the, the type of therapy they have, depending on what it is. Um, but from the perspective of the church, the cause is, is less significant, I think. I think it's the experience and understanding the experience, which may, have, of course, relate, help means that we would have to know something of the cause, really. But we, the, the church community can't diagnose in that sense. And so what we deal with is the lived experience of depression. 
Uh, and again, I emphasize, we should, as, as a community, we should be doing that in conversation with the mental health professionals. Because I think the church has got lots of good things to offer to psychiatry and vice versa. Um, but very often, or sometimes, they're like polar opposites. But what the church offers is, well, primarily Jesus, but it offers a, a safe community. It offers a possibility of friendship and it offers the ongoing hope in the midst of some really horrendous uh, situations. It doesn't offer happiness. Right? So one thing that might be helpful for us to think about is the difference between happiness and joy. Right? So happiness is it's a passing emotion. We like it. It feels good and that's fine. It's great. But nobody's happy all the time. And you wouldn't want to place your salvation on the basis of staying happy forever. But joy is something different. Joy is the thing in the midst of your darkest hour that gives you the possibility of, of hope. And Jesus talks a lot about joy. He doesn't talk an awful lot about happiness as a, as a, a, a central to the kingdom, but he does talk about joy. And I think that's what he means. But even if you're in that deep, dark pit of depression, there's still the possibility of joy, even if happiness seems to be ridiculous. And actually, many people uh, uh, living with depression don't consider it a loss of happiness. They, they, say, they say happiness is something apart from depression. So depression is this thing here, this, this experience here. It's not simply a lack of happiness. It's something different. Lack of happiness is part of that. But that's not what it is. Because sometimes, you know, we, we talk about people with depression as being unhappy. And, you know, I've been doing some work recently with people with severe, Christian with severe depression, and they say to me, that's not the, that's not the right way to, to frame it. Like, it's not a lack of happiness. Depression is something else. Lack of happiness comes into that, but as a secondary symptom, if you like, or secondary dimension. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Um, this is, I think, going to be the last question. I don't want to take up too much of your time. No, um when we think about engaging people sometimes um, with mental health issues, a lot of the times people get, I'm sure you've had this, where they feel like they need spaces of self-care because sometimes it can be, in, in engaging people who may have depression, you may get injured um, along the way. And not on intentionally, but when people push you away that you care about, it, it sometimes causes injury and hurt. Um, what are uh, best practices for self-care and engagement? Um, and what are ways in which we should be thinking about it differently? Um, because I know that especially when you're close to people, there could be a bit of a dilemma where the person you're talking to that you're trying to love um, that's depressed may not want you to share their depression with others, but the dilemma becomes when you need an outlet exactly. in which to vent. So you're kind of conflict, conflicted um, yeah. because some of us process verbally, some of us process through written form, um, but it might be a violation of the, of the person who's depressed trust. How do you maintain their trust and still have a safe space yeah. um, to, no, to um, engage with people? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have a direct answer to that, but I can give you uh, a way of thinking about it. First of all, first of all it's, it's very important that people recognize that most people who live with mental health challenges are not violent in that sense. Like, there's a kind of cultural myth that, that associates mental health challenges and violence and, and 
that's actually not the case, and it's very easy to, to show that that's not the case. However, this is how I think people should think. Uh, when Jesus is asked about what the sum uh, of the law and the prophets is, he says, to love God, to love your neighbour, to love yourself. Right? Now, that's not like a, a hierarchy. It's all part of the same process. You love God and you come to love your neighbour and you love yourself. It's all part of the, the same thing. So self-love is, unless it's, unless it's kind of narcissistic, narcissistic self-love, which is selfishness, not self-love. But loving and care for yourself is fundamentally important. And it's tied in with that love command that Jesus gives to us. So if you find yourself in a situation which you, places you in, in danger, for example, or in significant difficulties, um, you should deal with that. Because that, that's not to not deal with that and not withdraw from that, perhaps, is not to fulfill that love command of Jesus to love yourself. Right? So we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't feel as Christians that we have to put ourselves in danger just because we're supposed to love our neighbour. Um, because that's not the way that I think that command is intended to be. So maybe at certain moments of time that people do have to be rejected from a situation or no longer participate in a particular situation, and that's acceptable. However, abandonment is never acceptable. So if you have to withdraw somebody from a situation or withdraw yourself from a situation, our task as the body of Christ, i.e. the whole community, is to make sure that that person remains ministered to in a different context, in a different way, and perhaps by a different person. So we must never abandon people, but there's absolutely no uh, theological justification that I can say for putting ourselves in harm's way unnecessarily. Uh, and I think that's part of that love command. Mm -hmm. But it's lack, lack of abandonment also is very, very important. Yeah, well, when I was speaking of like, self-care i wasn't necessarily talking about being violent as much as um sometimes people can push you away so that them pushing you away kind of hurts um so what would you say to in in that respect find somebody to talk to because mm -hmm. it pushing away i mean if somebody get rejects you it's painful because you take it personally even if it's not necessarily personal at all so self-care i think in that context means making sure that somebody's supporting you while you're supporting somebody else. And that somebody has to be somebody who's very honest with you, whom you trust, and can tell you uh, difficult truths in a difficult situation. And I think as long as you're supported, then that rejection is at least mediated by the presence of somebody else who understands and can guide you through. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Um, what, um, what would be your final words for our audience on friendship, engaging people um, that may have mental health challenges and what books would you recommend? And also your, the final, what the final part with, to that, what would be ways people can get in contact with you through social media? Yeah, well, one of the things that you notice in, in Jesus' ministry, uh, and we often say is um, that Jesus sat with the marginalized. I'd like people to think that about that suggestion that actually he didn't sit with the marginalized. Because if you look at what happened in that situation, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, all these people were pushed to the margins by religious society. But Jesus, who is God, sat with them. He shifted the margins. He didn't sit in the margins. So suddenly the church or, or the synagogue, uh, where people were still worshipping God and doing all the wonderful things that they do, but God was over there doing something else. 
And my concern for the church sometimes is that we can get caught in exactly that same dilemma, that we can be full of worship, full of praise, full of good administration, and forget that the place that Jesus would be is with those who uh, society pushes to the margin. And in fact, that's where God sits and watches. So keep an eye on yourself and your congregation and make sure that you take this seriously, not as an option, but as a fundamental aspect of discipleship. Um, in terms of uh, books to read, there's a number of good books around. There's a, there's a little book that you might find useful um, that I wrote at one point in time back with um, Jean Vanier, who some of you may know founded the Larche Communities for uh, people with uh, intellectual disabilities. Well, he and I wrote a little book called Mental Health in the Church, which is a very simple essay. It's a very small book, but it just opens up space for understanding what it means to love in the midst of difference. And that might, people might find that uh, a useful little text. And in terms of social media, well, you'll find me somewhere on Facebook and you'll find me somewhere on Twitter. And I think I've even got an Instagram account, but I, I never used it. Like, I just look at pretty pictures. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Swinton. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Nice to meet you again. See you again. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. Com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.